15th person who's asked about recorded. I, oh, we got to start. Sorry. Here we go. Good morning, everybody. Hi. It must be a very pretty day outside because you all are so chatty. Oh my gosh, the energy is great. Glad to see you all this morning. Great again to have a good group in person. And hello to those of you joining us online. We are here continuing with the Kings and we're finally kind of with some Kings a little bit. At least we're getting there close. Um, today we're going to be looking at chapters 9 and 10 of 1 Samuel. And we're going to be looking primarily at the way that Saul, the first king of Israel, raises up into that role. Saul, we will find out, is not perhaps the best at being king, but he gets the ball rolling, so to speak. And so we're going to be seeing how Saul is effectively chosen and proclaimed as king today. And that will help set us up in a few weeks, we will get to David. And that's really going to be the meat of our year this year. And so we're getting there, but we're trying to, you know, build the house, so to speak. And this is the foundation. So a quick reminder, stmichael.org slash RBS. You can get all the schedule. You can get old podcasts. Um, I think I said last year, last year, <laughs> last week, feels like last year, um, last week that we have figured out the limit that Apple was putting on the podcast. And so now you can go back and see the couple hundred episodes that are actually there from the last five years. And so if you want to go and enjoy it again, I just had someone this morning say that they are doing Genesis with another community Bible study and they're re-listening to all of the Genesis RBS studies and that's really making it a much richer experience. And so if you ever want to revisit, re-listen, go on a walk and, you know, have something in your ears, then the podcasts are there for you. And as another reminder, we have commentaries in our bookshop. These commentaries are available, I guess. I actually did not confirm that they are still, that they still have copies, but probably. Bub says, yes, there are a few left. And so if you're interested, pick one up there. And as a reminder, ask questions. Um, you all really took me up on the ask questions bit last week. We got a whole series of questions between last week's study and this week's study. And a few of them were questions and I thought, I have no idea. And I had to go do some research, which is sort of exciting. So you all are really kind of digging in and asking some good questions. And so we'll deal with a few of those this week. Um, but if you're listening to this or watching after we are live, then you can ask questions in that comment field and above gathers all of those and aggregates them for me before next week's study. So let's start with a prayer and we'll jump in. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this beautiful day and for the gift of this life. We ask that you be present with us today. Fill us with your spirit. Help guide us that our hearts and minds will be open to the word that you have given us, to the revelation you continue to provide for us, and the encouragement and inspiration to be the people you've made us to be, to help extend your kingdom here on earth and show love to all of your children. Be especially with our friends today who are sick, who are ill, who are in the hospital. Be with those we hold in the silence of our hearts. Be with those we love and see no longer. And help each one of us to continue to rely on you and to hope in your future. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so let's look at the scope of today's lesson. Like I said, 1 Samuel chapters 9 and 10. So go ahead and get yourselves to chapter 9. We've got three sections today. The first is Saul's selection as king. So Saul is chosen as king first. Second, Samuel anoints Saul. And we're going to talk about what anointing really means and why that's important to us. Third, we're going to talk about Saul's proclamation as king. So not just selection and anointing, but then the proclamation. Those are going to be the three sections of today's study. So as I promised, we had really excellent questions over last week. We're not going to get to all of them, but I do want to hit on a few that I think are helpful for us. The first is a general question um, that I think is one of those that people may or may not 
think to ask, or if they think to ask, they don't have the courage to ask. And this came something totally different from First and Second Samuel. And it was just a general question, why are we called Christians? When did we get that name? When did that start to be used? And so the quick answer is that from Acts chapter 11, it says that in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So biblically speaking, it was part of the expansion of the Christian disciple group beyond Jerusalem that is recorded in Acts that names when we began to be called Christians. However, Christian as a name was not meant to be kind. It really was derogatory. Essentially, you had this group of people following the way of love. They really were trying to follow the way that Jesus put forward to them. And because others were trying to, or began to feel threatened by the Christians, by the followers of Jesus, I should say, people began to call them Christian as in the same way that Methodists are called Methodists. I think I may have told you all this story before, but there were, you know, Charles Wesley. Um, he and his brother were over in Oxford. They were being trained as Anglican priests. They developed a method by which they could grow and seek perfection in Christ. And the other Anglicans around them thought they were way too rigid and way too legal and began to poke fun at their methods toward perfection and called them Methodists. And so that's where that term comes from. Same thing with Christian. It was really meant to essentially make fun of them for following Jesus, this Christ figure. But then it stuck. And so Christian kind of continued with us. And so that's just an interesting question. Now let's get back to what we're doing here with Samuel. One question was why there was an emphasis in what we read for today that Saul came from the tribe of Benjamin, but was anointed king in the territory of Judah. Good question. I'm sure all of you are wondering the same thing, right? Um, so this has a rootedness back to who's telling the story and when. So as we all know, we said this a million times, that this story was really written down and certainly finished in and after the Babylonian exile. And so as the Jewish people began to reflect and say, who are we and why do we do certain things and on and on, they began to tell their stories in a very particular way. Remember that after the kingdom, the unified kingdom period, so Saul, David, and Solomon, there were three, were kings over all of Israel. The little asterisk there is that Saul was not really king over unified Israel. David and Solomon definitely were. But following Solomon, that kingdom split into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Ten of the twelve tribes of Israel were in the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom were the tribes of, surprise, Benjamin and Judah. Judah being 80% of the people in the southern kingdom. And so as the people are writing this story, they are all people who descend from the tribes of Benjamin and Judah. And so as they tell the story of their kings, it is no coincidence that Saul, David, and Solomon all come from one of the two tribes from the southern kingdom. Saul coming from the tribe of Benjamin and David and Solomon coming from the tribe of Judah. That is a remarkably cynical answer for you. Um, but I do want to say that as the story is told, there are objectives to the story beyond literal history. We've talked many times about how it is not literal history all the time. That is not the objective of the storytellers. The objective of the storytellers is to tell a good story, a story that inspires, a story that provides hope, and a story that gives people the courage to live the way that God wants them to live. And so the idea that there is a connection to these two tribes, remember the lost tribes of Israel? We've all kind of heard that phrase. Those lost tribes are the 10 tribes of the Northern Kingdom. Judah and Benjamin, specifically, are the tribes that continue into the future. We also have Levi is in there as well. Um, but essentially, you've got Benjamin and Judah continuing on from that southern kingdom. Let me see. Just as a quick kind of side note, what tribe does Jesus come from? Judah. And what tribe does Saul come from? Paul, the evangelist. Benjamin. And so we do have these connected threads all the way through because Jesus comes from the line of David. 
David comes from the line of Judah. And so even though I think we covered this last week, tribal identity isn't quite that important by the time you get to Jesus' period. It's still interesting to note that you've got these threads of both Judah and Benjamin that continue over centuries and centuries. All right, so that takes me to another question, which is the idea of revisionist history. So one person asked or said that they enjoy the idea of really understanding that as Israel tells their stories, they are essentially revising their history, which is, I want you to hear that in sort of a technical term, not either pro or con, whatever that is. I mean, nowadays you talk about revisionist history and everyone wants to tell a story in a particular way in order to reach a certain end because essentially history has, if we're not careful, become like propaganda. And so this is not that. This is essentially, we're telling a story and we're trying to tell the story in a particular way to motivate people. So yes, it is revised history, but their goal and their presentation is not that it is literal. They are telling a story. What the, this question actually gets at is, we know First and Second Samuel, that's what we're gonna be doing this year. But just beyond First and Second Samuel, you would get First and Second Chronicles. Chronicles is essentially a retelling of much of the story of 1st and 2nd Samuel. And so her question really is, why take a revised history and revise the revision with 1st and 2nd Chronicles, which is a great question. Essentially, what happens in 1st and 2nd Samuel is it almost concludes the whole story through the kingdom period. It doesn't quite, but almost. First and Second Chronicles starts from the beginning. The first word of First Chronicles is Adam, as in Adam and Eve. And there is a full nine, do you hear me? Nine chapters of First Chronicles that is nothing but genealogy. So if that's your thing, you would love it. If you don't need to hear 1,000 names in order, from all of the tribes and all the other stuff, then First and Second Chronicles is a little harder to read until you get to chapter 10. Essentially, what First and Second Chronicles does is they take the entire story and it's like the Reader's Digest version. And so they take everything from Genesis and they tell the entire story in order to point to what comes beyond the kingdom period. So think of it this way. First and Second Samuel is about what God has done and is doing. First and Second Chronicles is really about what God will do. Put another way, First and Second Samuel is concerned with the way that the kingdom of Israel comes about. First and Second Chronicles, although many of the same characters are there, is really concerned about the expectant Messiah that will be like King David. So first and second chronicles are important, particularly for us, because that begins to set the table around the entire idea of a Messiah will come at some point. And if we think about the way that the prophets fit into the story, the prophets preach both before, during, and after the Babylonian exile. Different prophets preach at different points in time. But most of the arc of the prophets points to what God will be doing in the future at some point, a promise that God will send a messianic king in the model of David, but even better, in order to bring about the promise of Israel being strong and delivered once again. We know that that foundation creates the understanding of the early disciples of Jesus to who Jesus even is. Remember that in the period of time that Jesus lived, every person had a different understanding of who Jesus was. It took at least 400 years for the followers of Jesus to begin to coalesce around a particular idea and identity or theology of Jesus. It took a long time. And even then, we didn't all agree. That's where we get the idea of heretic. It wasn't until the 300s when Rome began to try and create a tight, specific definition of what it meant to follow Jesus, 
that other people disagreed, and so they had to do something with those people, and they couldn't necessarily burn them at the stake with no reason, and so they had to call them heretics. And so that begins to diverge with all the different theological ideas within Christianity and even outside of Christianity with groups that many Christians would say are not Christian, even though they might say they follow Jesus. Okay. Mm-mm-mm. I think that's good for today. Any questions or follow-up on those kind of clarifying points? We had more questions than that. So we'll get to them. I have not lost them. So keep asking. Yes. Um, I didn't realize there was a hierarchy in the tribes. Yeah. He talks, Saul talks about, I'm just the, you know. Yes. The tribe of Benjamin. Yes. So when Saul references, uh, Saul has a, uh, I say this with the loosest context. There's a similarity between Saul's call and Moses's call where God essentially kind of comes to Saul and says, it's you. And Saul says, "Mm, not me. Um, Similar to what Moses did at the burning bush. Saul, one of the things that Saul says is, I'm only from the tribe of Benjamin. I mean, who am I? Okay. So that's a good note. If you can just put yourself in the context of the development of the promised land, Remember that Moses gets them out of Egypt, Joshua leads them into the promised land and the conquest, so to speak, of all of this area. And then the tribes essentially divide the land up. Well, so which tribe gets which land? If you were to look at, say, I don't know, this is way too large, but if you were to look at the center of the U.S., there are certainly areas where, if you imagine an agrarian society They have got to grow their own food or raise their own cattle or livestock. If you were to go from Texas up through whatever's north of us, what is that, the Dakotas? Um, I know, does that sound so Texan? (laughs) Um, To the other states, Um, then, (laughs) um, I know the problem with being a Floridian who lives in Texas is you're like, and the rest of the country, you know? Um, So, If you look, though, at the center cut of the U.S., and you were to think, okay, I've got to be able to grow some stuff and to raise animals, we know there are certain areas of that cut you do not want to live in. The ground will not grow. There is not enough for animals to eat. There's not enough water everywhere to support livestock and crops. And so, Essentially, you can think of the division of the land of Israel similar to that, where which tribe got which land? Well, which tribe was bigger and stronger and was able to essentially put a stake in the ground and say, this is mine, not yours. So there is a natural human division of goods and land and possible merchant economies and whatever that happens with the tribes based on really their strength. And so there are some tribes like Judah was a big, strong tribe. Benjamin just wasn't, and it never was. And actually I will get to in a little bit, my interpretation of Saul being from Benjamin actually says a whole lot more about what the people thought of God than of Benjamin. Because what did God do when the people wanted a king? God didn't go to the strongest tribe and pick their strongest person. God went to the weakest tribe and picked a very profoundly not kingly person. Because in a sense, the way that the Jewish people are telling the story is that our definition of what is good and strong and wise and able is not God's. The worldly economy, so to speak, is not God's economy. And we get that confused all the time, all the time. And here you've got a story where God begins the kingdom with the weakest tribe and not even the best guy from the weakest tribe. He might be the tallest guy from the weakest tribe, but that's about it. And we know not every tall person is the best person, says a short person. So, all right. Any other questions or clarity? All right, then let's jump in. Turn to chapter 9, 1 Samuel chapter 9. 
We're going to read in just a moment, but let's set this up. Saul is chosen to be king. So what do we know about this person, Saul? We know from the very beginning that Saul's father was wealthy. So Saul's coming from an affluent background, which essentially translates into his character as someone who doesn't really know how to work. And I know that you have no idea what that's about. Um, we certainly see this all the time. The more a kid gets, the less the kid seems to know what to do or how to do things. And so we, as parents who might give a lot to children, have to also be aware that you've got to give your child responsibility, even if it's almost fabricated responsibility, in order to raise them up to be a person who knows how to contribute to the world. So we know that Saul's father was wealthy. We know that Saul is handsome, more handsome than any other in Israel. I mean, whatever that's worth. Um, Saul is very tall, taller than everyone else in Israel. Okay, so Saul's wealthy, tall, handsome. Good for him. Now we know that those characteristics are not really meant to be literal. Although, sure, somebody had to be the tallest. Somebody had to be the most handsome. So could it have been tall, Saul? Sure. But essentially what we're doing here as a story is we're setting Saul up as exceptional. So that when God, I was going to say, when God picks Saul, yeah, kind of. We're going to get to how Saul was picked in a minute. Um, but when Saul is picked, let me just say that, it kind of seems smart or inevitable even. So we know at least that about Saul. Saul's story begins in a decently humble way. Saul goes about looking for some donkeys. So we see in the story that there were a bunch of donkeys that belonged to Saul's father. Well, the donkeys went missing, and so his father sent Saul out to look for the donkeys. And he took one of the boys with him, which probably essentially means like one of the slaves of the family. If we, if we remember the way that families would have been structured at this point in time, you would have essentially had a patriarch, and that patriarch would have had their immediate family, but then there would have been a bunch of families that lived under the patriarch's authority or affluence or protection or you whatever that means. And so we know this from kind of medieval period. You sort of had the royal family, the ones that lived in the big house, and then everyone else, the farmers and the shepherds and the, all the other people, lived on the land that did not belong to them and did work for the big house family. But not necessarily slave like we would think of slave in American history. It was a bit more like a give and take. I don't know. That's good enough. Okay. Let's look at chapter 9, verse 5. Chapter 9, verse 5. Saul is out here with his boy, whoever he took with him, um, looking for the donkeys. When they came to the land of Zeph, Saul said to the boy who was with him, let us turn back or my father will stop worrying about the donkeys and worry about us. But the boy said to Saul, there is a man of God in this town. He is a man held in honor. Whatever he says always comes true. Let's go there now. Perhaps he will tell us about the journey on which we have set out. Okay, we'll pause there. Remember what I said about Saul's father was wealthy? So Saul's father lost some donkeys, said, Saul, go find me some don the donkeys that are lost. And Saul goes and does like what my nine-year-old does, which probably does this. And, and then goes, I can't find the donkeys. You know, I mean, we all know how that is. And so Saul, who knows what Saul actually did, but Saul gave up pretty easily. Um, he's like, I don't know where the donkeys are. Let's just go home or else my dad will worry about us. Probably not. His dad probably really wants the donkeys. But this boy that goes with him is the voice of reason. This boy who goes with him is probably the one who actually knows that when there's a job to be done, you have to do the job. You don't get to just stop. No, you keep doing it until you've done it. And so the boy's like, ah, uh, no, I don't think so. But see how the storyteller tells the story. The boy says, hold on. But he doesn't say, 
We haven't checked here, here, and here for the donkeys. No, there's a pivot in the way the story is told. This boy now becomes part of God's efforts to actually move Saul toward the kingship. He says, hey, there's a man of God in that town. Let's go see what he thinks. Now, what sense does that make? Are they really going to go ask Samuel, by the way, who is the man of God, where the donkeys are? No. The donkeys have kind of gone by the wayside until they get, they get brought back in a minute. But essentially, this boy facilitates Saul meeting Samuel. Now, Saul finds Samuel. Samuel is a man who seems to be wanting to get some stuff done. And he is working for God's good. But then Saul crosses his path, and Saul is a person who doesn't seem to be in any hurry to do anything ever. And so let's look at verse 15 as Saul meets Samuel. Now, the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel this. Tomorrow, about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be ruler over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen the suffering of my people, because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall rule over my people. Context. The people have been asking for a king. This is not the first time. The people asked for a king way back in the wilderness. And God has resisted giving the people a king over and over and over. The Judges, the book of Judges, is filled with people saying, we need a king, and God doesn't want to give them a king. And so there is an actual shift here. God has, in a sense, been very reluctant to do a kingdom. And finally, it's as if God just gives in and says, okay, if they really want it, they're going to get it. And here's the guy. Samuel is, as we discussed last week, the last judge and the first prophet. So what has happened here in this story of Saul is Samuel has shifted. Samuel has gone from, which was essentially a judge, to now Samuel is hearing God's voice. Samuel is actually representing God's intention in the world in a very explicit way. God says, you're going to see the guy who's going to be king. And Saul walks up on his journey looking for donkeys, and God says, there he is. What is interesting to me about this is that Saul's story begins sort of uneventful. I mean, it's quite simple. The storyteller could have said anything to get Saul to meet Samuel. And they told the story of Saul looking for donkeys and giving up pretty quickly. That doesn't paint Saul in a particularly good light. And so I want to go back to the question about Benjamin, because I think the way that the storyteller tells this story undergirds my opinion that they believed God could do anything with anyone. Here Saul is a relatively unremarkable person. Yeah, he's tall and handsome, great, but he's obviously mostly worthless. And coming from the tribe that is not strong in any real way, and yet God tells Samuel, his first prophet, that Saul is the person he will anoint to be king. Saul is not perfect. Saul will make plenty of mistakes. We'll talk about many of them. But God's doing something in Saul to make it possible for Saul to be the first king. That's really important for us. Because not a person in this room likely thinks that they are God's gift to doing all good things in the world. We may know people like that, but they're probably not here in Bible study. And so <laughs> for us, we can actually feel heartened and a little bit pleased that even us, even each of us in our own imperfection, even each of us coming from many varied backgrounds with many varied abilities and capacities can still be used by God. When we talk in church and in other places about listening for God's voice, being open to the way God may nudge you, this is really what we're talking about. We're really talking about God working in ways we cannot understand to have us do work we certainly don't think we can do. And the truth is, we can't do that work without God's help. But it's with God's help 
that we are able to do remarkable things and all to God's glory. And so the way that Saul's story is told here shows that that perspective of how God works in the world is nothing new. That's not 21st century. This is going back nearly 3,000 years, at least, that people understood very truly how God works through our imperfection. And so that's the end of section one. Thoughts or questions? All right, let's press on. Section two, the anointing of Saul. Jump to verse 27. So still chapter nine, verse 27. As they were going down to the outskirts of the town, Samuel said to Saul, tell the boy to go on before us. And when he has passed on, stop here yourself for a while that I may make known to you the word of God. Now we're chapter 10, verse one. Samuel took a vial of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him. And Samuel said, the Lord has anointed you ruler over his people, Israel. You shall reign over the people of the Lord and you will save them from the hand of their enemies all around. And we'll pause there. Functionally speaking, an anointing is a ritualistic act that is meant to mark something as special. We know all about ritual. So as Episcopalians, we have a lot of rituals that matter to us. And so to name a few, there are clothes that we wear. And so, you know, priests put on the shiny things that look certain, things, certain ways, those are the vestments. But under the vestments, in a sense, there are a number of things that matter to us in particular. So you might know that priests wear collars when we are performing sacramental duties. I go to children all the time and talk about what that collar means. And the first thing I say to children is, who in your life wears collars? Of course, they immediately know. The answer is what? Yeah, pets, right? Dogs, cats, right. <laughs> right, adults always get that wrong. But you ask a child who in their life wears a collar, boom, they know immediately, dogs and cats and others. Why do pets wear collars because they belong to their owner and so in that same way priests belong to God and so we show that in a very literal way by wearing collars stoles that we wear it goes down both shoulders. I think I've told this story before, but I love this story. So um, I had a, a priest once who, when he, he, before he went to seminary, he worked in a really nice men's store. And so he was sort of known in the community as the guy who knew how to match patterns and he got the pocket square and which socks to wear and all that good stuff. And so he went off to seminary, came back, and every priest is ordained a deacon for at least six months. It's a traditional deacon, a transitional deacon. There are vocational deacons. They stay deacon forever, but priests are transitionally deacons for at least six months because ultimately all ordained people are first and foremost deacons because deacons are rooted in service. And so we serve that way. And then we're meant to be reminded of that for the rest of our vocation. But he came back to the same town where he worked at this fine men's store. And as a deacon for six months, you wear your stole across your body. Well, he said so many times men would come up to him and say, I really like what you've done with your stole, you know? Um, because they just perceived it as a fashion statement, you know? Um, which I think is hilarious. <laughs> Priests do not wear stoles across their bodies. Priests wear stoles over their shoulders. The reason we wear stoles over our shoulders like that is to represent a yoke. So if you think about cattle that do work in the fields, they are yoked to all the stuff they're pulling behind. In a similar sense, we are meant to go out and do the work of God in the world and so we represent that yoke by the stole. So those are just a couple examples of the way in which what we wear represents some deeper meaning, even though obviously our collars and our stoles are not literally like pet collars and yokes. 
but it's meant to represent that and remind us of that. Another good example is as Episcopalians, when we worship, we sit, stand, and kneel. It is not random why we sit, stand, and kneel. We sit to learn, we stand to praise, and we kneel to pray. And so if you think about the way in which we shape our worship, sitting, standing, and kneeling should always pretty much connect themselves to whether we are learning something. So we're sitting here, we're sitting during a sermon, we're sitting during the reading of scripture, or whether we are praising God when we stand, we always stand to what? Sing, right. So we praise God in our singing and we stand. And then we kneel to pray. We don't always, always kneel to pray because at some point along the line, people are like, let's stand. But I like kneeling. Um, I love that song, you know, remember what your knees are for. Um, to me, the idea of kneeling, and I know that at some point in our lives, we all go through phases where maybe our knees can't really do that anymore. But kneeling to pray is a very humble stance. And it reminds us of what it is that we are doing when we pray. Now, obviously, as Episcopalians, prayers matter to us a lot. We are the inheritors of the first uh, words, the first way to worship in our own language. I don't even know what to, how to put that better. Sorry, that was very messy. Um, but the Book of Common Prayer was the first time that the church writ large gave people a way to pray in their own language. Up to that point, it was always Latin. And people kind of knew what was going on, but people didn't speak Latin. Only the priests knew Latin. They just simply came to worship every week and understood that that word probably was about at that point in the service, and that was it. So we inherited this Book of Common Prayer where words matter, and then of course we know that the Book of Common Prayer is in human history one of the most elegantly written pieces of writing ever. We love our prayers. We love the poetry of our words because we firmly believe that praying shapes believing. And another way to put that is what we pray is who we become. And our prayers matter in a very real way. I like to tell the story of the first time I went to an Episcopal church, having been raised Catholic, I, I knew about confession. That was where we had to line up outside of the booth and then go tell the priest that we, you know, misbehaved in some way. And so we had to do that every year in order to, I don't know, be loved or something. And so going to the Episcopal church, we did a corporate confession. And I was like, thank you, geez, because that's so much nicer. And so we knelt down and then we began that confession and Episcopalians in the room know what those words say. And it came to a line where it asks forgiveness for what we have done and what? What we have left undone. And I can remember just kind of freezing and thinking, whoa, that's a totally different idea. Because we are often, at least I was taught, and I'm sure we were probably all taught, if you do something wrong, you go and apologize, right? You ask forgiveness. That Not everyone does that, but that's what we were taught. What about the good things we should have done and we didn't? Wow, that, that really hit me hard. Because I do think as Christians, we are often very quick to say that we didn't do bad stuff. Well, good for you. It is much more important that we do good stuff. And that, that's a lot harder because that is so open-ended and it is so huge. We can never really reach that goal. Yep, that's the life. And that's what we accept. And so all of that is to say, in this section, when Samuel anoints Saul and uses oil, this oil is not magic. There is nothing that happens to Saul in some weird, magical way. But oil matters because ritual matters. What those rituals represent matters. And so the anointing with oil 
is something that was important to Jewish identity. In the same way that we don't just baptize people with water, after the water, we anoint them with oil. This is so ancient. And does it matter? I mean, truthfully, is someone not baptized if they don't get the oil? Absolutely not. Water's it. That's it. But we do oil in addition to water because we understand that it represents a connection that goes back thousands of years that shows God's presence in a very real and tangible way. All right. Any thoughts or questions on that? We're going to look at the way, the three signs that Saul receives, but just follow up or thoughts? All right. In addition to all of the sort of anointing that happens here, Saul gets three signs that he is somehow set apart. They are, two of them are relatively dumb, um, but we're going to just note them because it's Bible study and you should know it's there. So look at chapter 10, verse 2. The first sign Saul gets is he's going to find out the donkeys have returned. All right. Thank God the donkeys are back. Okay, chapter 10, verse 2. Samuel says to Saul, When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. They will say to you, The donkeys that you went to seek are found, and now your father has stopped worrying about them and is worrying about you, saying, What shall I do about my son? Okay, there's sign one. The donkeys are back. And looks like Saul was right. His dad's going to worry about him. So, it, funny how the story goes. Number two, some random guys are going to give Saul some bread. Verse three, then you shall go on from there further and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there. One carrying three kids, that, not children, goats, yes. Another carrying three loaves of bread and another carrying a skin of wine. They will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from them. Sign number two. It's terribly exciting, isn't it? Donkeys are back, and he gets some bread. Sign number three. Saul is going to be possessed by the Spirit. Verse five. After that, you shall come to Gibeath Elohim, at the place where the Philistine garrison is. There, as you come to the town, you will meet a band of prophets coming down from the shrine with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre playing in front of them. They will be in a prophetic frenzy. Then the Spirit of the Lord will possess you, and you will be in a prophetic frenzy along with them and be turned into a different person. Now these three ideas are critical to understanding the person of Saul. So I joke about the donkeys and the bread, but honestly, what really is happening here with these three signs is we're getting a more three-dimensional picture of who Saul actually is, setting up his kingship. First, that sign about the donkeys. Saul is essentially not directing his own life. He went out to find the donkeys, remember. He gave up searching for the donkeys. The donkeys came back anyway. That shows Saul can't really get the job done, and the job gets done without him. So that's not necessarily lifting Saul up as some exceptional person. Two, Saul gets these two loaves of bread. That reinforces the idea that Saul is not the one who really makes his life happen. At this point, Saul's probably hungry. Some person shows up and hands him bread. I mean, this is like telling the story of an irresponsible brat child. And we get this more and more as we turn the crystal. Three, Saul is open to what God will do in his life. There we really get something important. Saul goes down and he meets the prophets and they are in a frenzy. Saul then is possessed, that's what the word says, possessed by God and is in a frenzy himself and becomes a different person. Now we can unpack this all we want. And if I were Pentecostal, I would tell you he was speaking in tongues. But maybe he was, I don't know. What Saul was, however, is open. And in his openness, 
God filled him up and changed him, made him a different person. This is critically important because ultimately, what we see in Saul and David and Solomon is a profoundly imperfect willingness to let God in. The problem with Saul will end up being that Saul shuts God out. He doesn't remain open, but at least he starts that way. And that kind of idea is really important for us to take away from this section. All right, we're good with section number two. We're going to go on to Saul's proclamation as king. Questions? I'm not going to get any speaking in tongues questions. Thank you. Okay. I appreciate that. Section number three, Saul proclaimed as king. As we get to this section, it's important for us to note that this is really about how Saul becomes the king. There are essentially three actions that anchor Saul as the first king of Israel. And they are not necessarily building on one another. They're almost equally important in his kingship to the point where it might actually be a redundancy in the way the story is told. And what I mean by that is, if you go on into chapter 10, if you read ahead, you may have gotten to the middle of chapter 10 and thought, what just happened? Because you kind of had this story going along. Saul went out to look for the donkeys, met Samuel, got some prophecies, he got in a frenzy and everything, and it almost appears like they take a step back. I mean, Samuel has already anointed Saul at this point. And then we almost get to a point where it's as if Samuel hadn't anointed Saul and they cast lots. What is probably happening here is there were multiple stories of the way that Saul became king. And the writers simply included them all. And we can mess around with what came first and then what came second and all that sort of stuff. And why did they do that? And then they did that. What I want you to just accept is that these were probably parallel stories of how Paul, uh, sorry, how Saul became king. And rather than just choosing one, they just included them all. And so it's important for us to know that they may have all happened. Maybe only one of them happened. Kind of doesn't really matter, and that is okay. So let's look at the point at which we've already talked about anointing. Now that that's one. Now let's look at two. The people draw lots, which is essentially they kind of gamble in order to figure out who's going to be king. So turn to chapter 10, verse 17. We're going to read a little bit here. 1017, Samuel summoned the people to the Lord at Mitzpah and said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all your calamities and all your distresses, and you have said no, but set before us a king. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your clans. Pause there. God's not happy. God has essentially said, fine. You want a king even after you have not needed one? Look at everything that has happened to you out of slavery in Egypt, go on through the wilderness, you've conquered this land, you, everything is not 100% fine, but you're fine. And yet you still need some human to be in charge of you because I'm not good enough. Fine, let's do it. And so God's like, bring it. Get all the tribes out in front of me and we're going to figure out who's going to be king. Let's jump back in. Verse 20. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. So did you catch that? All 12 tribes are in front of him. They're, they cast lots in some way, which traditionally means you're rolling dice or bones or something like that. And so of all the 12 tribes, Benjamin is selected. Okay, so now we have reduced down to a single tribe. Verse 21. 
Samuel brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its families, and the family of the Matrites was taken by Lot. So we've got now 12 tribes down to one tribe. Now within the tribe, you've got all of the main families. So all those families come together, lots are cast, the Matrites are taken by Lot. Finally, he brought the family of the Matrites near, man by man, and Saul the son of Kish was taken by Lot. So now we've gotten down to a single family of the tr a single tribe, and you take all the men who could be king, cast lots, and Saul is chosen. What a weird story after having just gone through all this other stuff. Saul finds Samuel, Samuel anoints him, gives him a prophetic vision, it all comes true, and then we just pivot on a dime, and it seems like Samuel's starting all over again. Could it be that Saul is somehow represented as fairly chosen? You know, Samuel could have, kind of off to the side, understood that Saul was the one, but he had to go through all of this show to make sure the people didn't think, what, Samuel was doing something selfish or self-interested? That by casting lots, perhaps God's hand is very much in Saul's selection? Maybe there's no problem with that, but we don't hear it that way in the story. Just to finish that, we say, Verse 22, they inquired again of the Lord, did the man come here and brought, I'm sorry, I lost my place. Did the man come here? And the Lord said, see, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and brought him from there. When he took his stand among the people, he was head and shoulders taller than any of them. Samuel said to all the people, do you see the one whom the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, long live the king. So we get this whole story of 12 tribes to one, all the families down to one family, of all the men in that family down to Saul, and then everyone's like, where'd Saul go? <laughs> Saul hid himself among the baggage. So once again, we get this, how easy would it have been for the people telling the story to not have included that? I mean, if you just, like, leave verses 22 and 3 out, and Saul could have just stood in front of them, head and shoulders above everyone else, and long live the king. No, they inserted this ridiculous story of a grown man going to hide himself among the baggage to not be king. That sure inspires confidence. So we get this interesting story that is very much a combination of a few archetypes that have come before us. So the first archetype is the reluctant leader. So multiple times, Saul has tried not to be king. We, anyone hearing this story, would immediately go back to the burning bush and Moses. So as I noted earlier, this is essentially raising up a person who is not meant to be shown as weak, but is definitely connected in their story to their history with a person who may have started off as a reluctant leader, but become someone really great. And so they're definitely drawing a line between those two dots. Further, remember when this story was written, the kingdom period is all past when this story is being written. There is, in their history, a person who was beautiful and became a fantastic leader, and that's David. David is described a hundred times as being a beautiful person, and that is a physical beauty. Saul here is somehow pointed to as being physically present both attractive as being handsome, but also multiple times people note that he is tall. And so we can understand Saul is a big guy. The cloud that hangs over all of these proceedings is the Philistines. The Philistines are hanging out there on the border over by Mitzvah, and the Philistines are constantly causing trouble we will get to a story in which the Philistines threaten the entire integrity of Israel and their kingdom. 
And who is their champion? Goliath. Goliath. And so the Philistines are connected all over this story. They are constantly the annoying tribe over there that come in and try to take land. They come in and they steal stuff. They stole the ark in the past. They're going to steal the ark again. They just are a bother. And so part of what Saul represents is a unity that the Israelites are seeking, not just because they want some fancy clothes and a crown, but because they want unified protection against the Philistines. And so Saul's physical presence is actually quite important because as we will see next week, Saul actually leads military actions that help to protect the Israelites from the Philistines. So now that we've gotten this proclamation moment, there is a reluctance that shadows the entire story. I can imagine people reading this story and it is not great because essentially what happens is they cast all these lots, Saul hides, he comes back out, they say, long live the king. And as you go on beyond in chapter 10, you essentially get the people who say, yay. They're not that excited. It's almost as if Samuel says, and here's your king. And then the people go, okay. It starts off with a whimper. But we will see over the next couple weeks that Saul actually begins to make an impact. Saul will never be the king that David and Solomon were. But Saul gets everything going such that by the time David comes on the scene, David has the capacity, the political opportunity to unify everyone and to create that united kingdom that will then ultimately disintegrate into the exile. Um, I think that's good for this week. Any last questions or thoughts? Yes. So are you asking, so in verse 22, because essentially the people say, God, where did he go? And God says, he's over in the baggage. Um, is, is, is your question, help me, Elizabeth, is your question... Okay, so if, if God is speaking to them, wouldn't that kind of be, like, neat and a good thing? Um, this gets back to an idea, and we had another question I didn't get to today, but I can kind of touch it here. Um, someone asked about previous studies where I had talked about it not being ideal to bargain with God. And yet we saw last week with Hannah that there was essentially a bargaining around Samuel. You know, if you get me pregnant, I'm going to give him to you, that kind of thing. And I put that in the same category as the people ask God where Saul went and, Saul, and God said, over there. Um, it's not literally God speaking. And Hannah's story is not literally a deal with God. The story is being told that way. And so we are reading it accurately. But we always need to read this with the lens of the storyteller tells the story a particular way. And so it's not that it's untrue. The truth, however, is in the way that the people understood how God worked with them. So what we do here is we don't necessarily read, oh, God used to talk to people, now God's not talking to me or to us anymore. But instead, the people understood that God worked in a particular way, and over time, our understanding of the way that God works in the world has changed. And so essentially for us as Christian people, the way that God works in the world fundamentally changed with Jesus. So when we look at all of the Old Testament stuff and people say God spoke and God did and whatever, we have to be careful not to say, why did God kill all those people? 
Why did God say that particular thing? Why did people get God to change his mind and on and on? There are so many different ways that we can look at the Old Testament stories and essentially ask the wrong question. The better question is, why did people think God functioned that way? And for me, it makes the life and the ministry of Jesus make a lot more sense when I can look at the Old Testament and say, there was a pretty significant misunderstanding of the way that God worked in the world, and Jesus came to clarify. And so ultimately, that's probably time, isn't it? Thank you, alarm person. Um, so, <laughs> um, <laughs> there is... <laughs> oh my goodness, I get snarky when I'm hungry. Um, there's a... There is a way in which we can, as disciples of Jesus, that idea is perhaps the most critical for us to wrestle with. Because in our world, when the rubber really hits the road and we say, how are we supposed to live? Most of the world wishes us to be Christian understanding God to function the way people understood God to function before Jesus. We have to accept the rigor and the challenge of trying to understand how we function in the world through the truth of Jesus. That, that little nugget, that's everything. And I bet we could reduce almost every, if not every single conflict that we as religious or faithful people get into with others to that one idea. And so you've heard me say many times, if something in the Bible seems to conflict with what Jesus did, we go with Jesus. We are Christians. And if we can accept the rigor of that, because it is not easy, it is so hard, then we are able to help bring about the kingdom in the way that Jesus really called his disciples to do. All right, time's up. Thank you all. I'll see you next week. <laughs>